Hello and welcome to this week's PropCast with Andrew Teacher. And I'm joined this week by Anna Strongman, who's CEO of Oxford University Development, OUD, which is a joint venture between Legal and General and Oxford University. Good morning to you. Fantastic to see you. Anna, tell us about OUD. You've been there now for a while. What is it coming up to two years? Yeah, about two and a half years now. Two and a half years. So a bit of a change of scenery from more than a decade at Argent, where you were pretty much focus on King's Cross from day one till the end. This is obviously a slightly different landscape in every sense of the word, but what are the biggest challenges on your plate right now in the current landscape? Thanks very much, Andrew. Delighted to be here talking to you this morning. Certainly is a change of scene, but an absolutely fascinating one, to be honest. Worked on King's Cross and other urgent projects for, as you say, over a decade. Now I'm in Oxford. I'm living in Oxford I'm running the joint venture between the university and legal in general. And in terms of our challenges, we have got challenges on the ground. So we're bringing forward seven different sites in Oxford. We are trying to ensure that we're delivering really high quality schemes. We're trying to get planning permission for those schemes in quite a political landscape, I think it's fair to say, in a city which is constrained on many fronts with a community who have a lot of different views on development and different worldviews on the future of the city. And we are trying to navigate all of that, which is complex and challenging, but also exciting because there's a lot of opportunity there. Also, you know, day-to-day challenges, got two major shareholders in the form of the university and legal in general, both of whom are committed to the long term, have a strong set of values. But, you know, obviously they work in different ways and trying to bring those two institutions together to get the best out of them. I guess it's one of the few joint ventures that Legal in General has where the other party has got a longer standing brand than LNG has. I think that's right. Probably the only one. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think they do share the same set of values and the long-term vision, but they do have different approaches to bringing forward that development. And they're both organisations, I think, who are used to forging ahead possibly on their own terms. So Mm. bringing them both together, they're up for it. It's just how does that actually manifest itself? It is, again, an opportunity, but it takes a lot of work to take that forward. So has that required a bit of adjustment on the part of of both the JV partners? As you say, enabling them to work together and recognising that there's someone else in the room? Yeah, I think it has. And I think from the university's perspective... They really understand the city. They're committed to... Well, they've been there for long enough. Yeah, they're committed to the future (laughs) of the university. They're committed to the future of Oxford. But they are bringing forward their sites, not to make profit, but to deliver operational assets, which will really underpin the future. But they're doing that with a commercial partner. Mm. It's just not their every day to day. They have a lot of partnerships. So starting to think about what that means for them... And to give the university a lot of credit, they're really trying to embrace that, but it's not necessarily their comfort zone. And I think for legal in general, again, they have a lot of partnerships, a lot of commercial joint ventures, a lot of successful businesses. And in Oxford, again, they're having to think about how they sort of bend and shift their approach to build that partnership with the university to make the most of it. Because it is an enormous opportunity. You've got the university there as an anchor. You've got fantastic land bank in a city which doesn't have a lot of land and has really strong market values. 
So there's potential to do something really exceptional. And because we're building on seven different sites, the key question for me is how do you make those sites more than the sum of their parts? So how do you really start thinking about what the portfolio in itself can bring to the city? And the shareholders get that. We've just got to work out what does that mean? Yeah, and as you say, it's going to mean something slightly different to different groups of people. But I think there's an opportunity to tap into the changing manner and the changing DNA of students, I think, these days. And them, certainly younger generations, really, really being engaged by climate change and mitigating the effects of it. And also just the broader efficacy of how life is managed these days. Not saying that people of previous generations didn't, but there's an argument to which people of historic generations were too busy with other things, perhaps. But I think there's certainly an engagement now of this current generation that we've not seen. And that, I think, can be massively used to your advantage, as well as the obvious point about the many solutions, AstraZeneca vaccine being the obvious one, that have been generated in the city. Yeah, I think it's a really good point, Andrew. And I think it relates to one of our wider ongoing challenges about how do we talk about these developments Mm. in the context of people's long-term view of Oxford and the challenges facing the city. And we can't just talk about... You can't just talk about houses and buildings. No. People don't really care about houses and buildings. They care about what goes on inside them. And we can't just talk about GVA and GDP and jobs for whatever. We've got to talk to the local community about actually addressing housing affordability, creating the innovation ecosystem to enable people to solve massive global issues, climate change, cancer, energy sources. You know, the scientists of Oxford are amazing and they're really trying to address these massive issues we all face. But we've got to somehow talk about those to the local community on a level which matters to people. Mm. And for some people, it might be animal health, whether that's the health of their pets or the health of the farm animals. I mean, it could be anything. I think that you've got such a vast menu of innovation that takes place in the city that I would think that you'd be spoiled for choice, really, with that. I think to some degree, the challenge is the delivery of the narrative rather than the narrative itself. I think whereas many developers often struggle with substance and are then accused of being a little bit shallow, I think the opposite is true here. There's so much to talk about. You talk to people about what they're doing in the city and it never ceases to amaze me the depth and breadth of the issues which are being dealt with. I think it's just opening that up to a broader audience. Mm. And the university do some great work in this area. We're trying to link it to the development story and the form of development going forward. And again, that's not something which has happened that much, partly because there hasn't been very much development in Oxford itself. So I actually think, again, it offers a great opportunity. We've just got to work out what it means on the ground. And we started, actually, we do it with running science communication, innovation communication events in local town halls, local schools. We're holding a sort of garden party at Begbrook Science Park in the summer And we're seeing how it goes and then trying to get that debate going. Some people think we're using that just to get planning permission. And, you know, that in itself has sparked debate. It shows, you know, the realities on the ground. Mm. But there's a level of cynicism, I think, that just is pervasive across the whole of the property sector, which is as the result of the vast majority of people's experiences and engagement with the sector being negative. That's not 
your fault. That's not legal and general's fault. It's not Oxford University's fault. It's just a statement of fact. Yeah, and I don't think it should stop you. you just got to keep going. Yeah. So Begbrook, you just mentioned, that's probably the scheme that many people may be familiar with that you've been working on for a while. So that's 2,000-ish homes, three new schools, one and a half million square foot of new lab space, as well as transport links, parks, and a huge amount of public realm. What's there not to like about that, really? It sounds pretty cool. Talk us through the housing offer, because I think that's obviously going to be one of the divisive points locally, particularly in such a price-constrained city. How are you looking to square that circle of housing, particularly students, postgrads, and teaching staff? Because they're often the people that get forgotten about, aren't they? Yeah, and the site was allocated for housing and taken out of the Greenbelt. I can understand the issues facing the local communities, looking out on the green fields surrounding their villages, and we are going to take that site forward and build on those fields. We're going to do it in a way which will bring local benefits from enhancing access, improving the quality of the green space, building new facilities, new schools, and new housing, as you say. And we'll be building 50% of affordable housing up at Begbrook. And a significant proportion of that, we hope, will be available for university staff. And it's all part of the need to meet on Oxford's unmet housing need. So it's all linked to provision of housing for university staff, but within the context of meeting Oxford's unmet housing need. And there will be affordable housing, more sort of standard forms of affordable housing delivered alongside that. Mm. And we'll so be- it's not just going to be a closed university campus, it's going to be an outward looking community. Exactly. And the feedback we've had from staff when we've surveyed them is that they want to live in a place which has got a mixed community, people from different places living alongside them. So it's very much... It's not the Truman Show. No, and it's not Bourneville or Saltaire. It is a new Oxfordshire village which will be open, mixed different types of people living there, using the schools and significantly working at the Science Park. So Begbrook Science Park exists today. It's where Nanapore started. It's got some fantastic research in particularly material science and it's absolutely full to the gunnels with people who want to be located there, not able to be there. So we're really trying to expand that commercial space. And where, where would people academy. be going if they weren't there? Would they be... I guess they'd be going where to Milton Park or to Some of them will be located. If they can't find space, they'll go elsewhere in Oxford. But, you know, a lot of those spin-outs and businesses, if they can't find space in Oxford, they go to the States. So it's really critical that collectively we can build the types of space, the types of environment, create housing that the talent can live in. And also, I'll be honest, open up opportunities to the wider community to actually work and access jobs within the innovation sector so that the businesses stay here and don't go overseas. Is there a level of complacency, you think, in Oxford about the fact that it has been top of the world league of universities for centuries almost and that just because there's a bit of a crunch in housing supply and people are complaining about a shortage of lab space, actually, there was no real problem. I think it's a good question. I don't think there's complacency. Well, with I some think, groups, maybe. I don't mean across the board. But I think the university is really working hard to address the issues that its researchers, its staff, its students are facing, and they know that they have to work 
with the city authorities and with the surrounding districts to really address those issues. Things like transport, things like environmental quality. And I think there is a sense across those groups that these issues have to be addressed. I think that it's a challenge for the city to manage these pressures of growth. In itself, it's geographically constrained. If you look at a map of it, it's not very big and it's surrounded by a lot of green space with floodplains on it. So I think there's a sense of how do we navigate all of this? And there's a local community which has a range of different views. Some people still see Oxford as a market town servicing the surrounding communities. Some people see it as a beating heart of an innovation hub. Some people see it as a university town and some people see it as a place where they'd like to stay but they can't and they have to move out and they'd like to see more housing. So there's a range of different worldviews jostling with each other and trying to navigate that and be respectful of those views but also secure the future of the city and the university is one of our opportunities, one of our challenges. Hmm. And I guess there's a way to do that responsibly in a fashion that doesn't scare off lots and lots of people. And that's precisely what you spent 12 years doing in King's Cross. It was a slightly different environment, but nevertheless, <laughs> King's Cross, I think if you compare that, for example, to what they've done at Battersea, uh, I'd much rather hang out at King's Cross. It's a much more respectful development in terms of being a just a cool place, a nice place to hang out. It doesn't have loads of overly imposing architecture as a huge focus on the public realm. And those would be the things that the people of Oxford would be concerned about. They'd be concerned about big, graping towers coming in and aggressive architecture that undermines the historic heritage value of the city. Yeah, I, and I, you know, King's Cross is deep in my heart. I worked on it for a long time and you know, I absolutely love the scheme. And what, what are you taking across from it? I mean, obviously, it is a slightly different landscape in any respect, but there must be things that have collected in your DNA over the years that you're transposing... Absolutely. And I think it's partly about how you approach development, which you picked up on a key point, which is really high quality public realm, ground floor. And I realised through my work at King's Cross that public realm in itself is a civic amenity. And if you can create that high quality public, space... Public space is the anchor tenant now, isn't it? In, it, it in... I think it is, yeah. And it does require quite a lot of careful design and thought. And some of it is not the big, glamorous, shiny stuff. It's where do you put the benches? What's the microclimate? How do you manage it in an inclusive way? So I absolutely think that is fundamental to what we're trying to do in Oxford. And I would say Oxford, I find so fascinating because a lot of the public realm is actually behind the walls of the colleges. So if you look at an aerial view of Oxford, it looks very green, but if you walk around it, it feels quite hard. And that's because the green spaces are not in the civic realm. Depends much about to drink. <laughs> <laughs> so I think with our schemes, we can actually create some fantastic new spaces up at Begbrook. And um, the university wants that. The university wants to bring more people absolutely, in. Absolutely, yeah. Irene Tracy, the Vice-Chancellor, is committed to local and global approaches and it's our job to actually translate that into bringing forward development and I think we've got some opportunities in our scheme to constantly be thinking about how do we interact with the city, how do we interact with social infrastructure, what can we do here to open up these buildings and these spaces I think the other thing that I took from King's Cross is kind of an attitude to development and 
being a willingness to go out and talk to people and listen and you're not always going to agree with everyone and you're certainly not going to take everyone with you but I think having an open and transparent approach and actually learning from people who understand the area better than you do is absolutely critical and running programs which are not just about the built form as you say it's about what goes into the buildings but also education programs community programs skills and employment programs are really an important element of making those developments part of the local community and I think there is a commitment from both shareholders to do that. So that point social value I suppose is how people would describe that how are you piecing together that plan because again people think of Oxford as this ultra rich ultra smart city and it is both of those things in certain areas but there's also a lot of deprivation much like any part of most English cities that lies in stark contrast to some of the bigger houses and more successful business people that live you know in the outer reaches. Uh, yeah, you're right. That deprivation in Oxford is quite geographically distinct in a way where I'd say in London that it is more cheek by jowl. And that actually poses challenges to actually bringing people into the opportunities we're trying to create. We're at the start of the journey, but that doesn't mean that you just say, oh, that's for when we build stuff or that's when we operate stuff. So today we are running science and innovation engagement events as part of our public consultation. They're separate because we want to generally invest in the science and the innovation activities regardless of the planning outcome. So we're running events in schools, in local community. We're running a big science festival up at Begbrit in the summer. So beginning to start opening up and having those conversations right from the beginning. Also, arts and culture, bringing that into the discussion. So we're having an artist in residence up at Begbrook. So it's an attitude to mind which has informed how we take forward our consultation and what activities we run today. And we hope to build on that as we bring our projects forward. Mm. And going back to what you were saying in terms of the design and the public realm, does architecture need to change with labs? Because as you said, with a lot of university developments as they have been, they sit behind big gates and big fences and walls and possibly aren't quite as engaging to visitors as they could be. And from the research we've done, there's a lot of the newer lab developments in the US, which are mostly anchored by universities just because of the scale of investment, particularly in states like Texas, where they can afford to invest in huge amounts of machinery that support then the private sector. But in engaging people, the architecture is often much more like theatre than a conventional lab, which, yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting, I think, just to look at, but functionally it would seek to solve some of those problems you've described around engagement. And is that something that you'll be looking at with some of the science spaces? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's a really interesting area. Let's just face it, there's a tension there because some of the work which is carrying on the labs is... Yeah, it's is, deeply private. Yeah, is, is, <laughs> commercially know, sensitive, Exactly. Course. So, you know, there's a lot of frosted glass when you walk around some of these buildings. But I think there's an appreciation. And I think that partly stems from some of the newer academic buildings which have been built. So we're building the Life and Mind building as part of this joint venture, which is a new academic building, which brings a range of departments together. And it's very focused, the design, on enhancing collaboration 
within the building, but also creating new public realm at the front of the building and creating a much more inviting entrance into that space. And it is fascinating when you talk to those who work in the new mass building, well, it's not so new now, but the mass building at the university, which was built to enhance collaboration between different mass groups. And that has had a meaningful impact on the research that's undertaken there. So if we could take some of those principles, which have already been applied within the building and shown to have worked, and somehow open that up another step through the commercial R&D space and potentially some of the academic buildings, that could be a really interesting experiment in bringing people in to the spaces. Mm. And if you told those maths groups that you gave up physics at university? <laughs> I mentioned it to one academic. I quickly decided not to, <laughs> not to tell anybody else. What I loved about the maths building is if you go into the canteen, they have tables with whiteboards on top so that people can sit and have their sandwiches and do their and all the price And the prices in, in fractions. Yeah, and I just thought, God, that is a lesson for us all. Wouldn't it be great if we all worked on whiteboards and kind of doodle away? in the canteen I thought that was great no that's excellent and what degree of occupiers will be from the private sector I mean how much of the space is the university going to be taking on the lab side again another good question so up at Begbrook they'll probably take anything from sort of a quarter to half of the space depending on how the site evolves and Mm. you know for what usage what types of science would be conducted there so we've been working with the materials physics life science department and they have a range of different themes addressing issues from climate change through to energy research through to life sciences development and some of the really interesting research is where some of those themes come together where materials meets life sciences for example so they have a number of departments already based up at Begbrook and a number who are looking to relocate but there's also a degree of flexibility in how the academics then work with the industry who choose to locate up at Begbrook and I think one of the key themes is actually creating a space which has a real pioneering experiential culture and that's something that the Pro Vice Chancellor of Research, Patrick Grant, who's been at Begbrook for a long time, he really does see Begbrook as this kind of he describes it as the court coming out of the champagne bottle, the place where people can really come and explore and have the space and the facilities to try out new things. So do you have to, as a developer and as an urban planner and a designer, do you have to do something that the JV isn't going to be comfortable with? Do you have to just almost turn over some of the space for potential chaos and random activity? Because ultimately, if you look at Boston, Massachusetts, and pick any kind of innovation of anywhere on the planet, a lot of these places started by complete accident or as a serendipitous result of a few things happening. I think we definitely have to create flexibility in the spaces that we deliver, absolutely. And we've got to keep an open mind to how we bring forward the development. And I think creating a genuine culture of innovation is partly about that flexibility of real estate partly about creating the range of real estate from sort of bench startups through to space for bigger organizations to come but it's also about creating and supporting the networks of different researchers well i was going to ask you about networks such as ose formerly osi oxford science What's it called now? Oxford Science Enterprise. Yeah. Oxford Science Innovation. They get very upset if you still call it OSI. And OSE 
it's essentially the tech transfer unit of Oxford University, something that um, we've suggested this a few times on this podcast, that more universities would benefit to have a similar sort of structure. But OSE is fantastic and they have an amazing network and presumably you're well tapped into that. We're working really closely with OSE. So you've got the university and then you've actually got a department in the university who deals with that kind of immediate tech transfer and then OSE come along and sort of support the businesses as they grow with funding but also with finding them brilliant people to help run the businesses and it's all part of this sense of the journey of innovation so how do you create the support to support the research and the entrepreneurs to grow out those ideas into commercial businesses and the interesting thing I've learned from doing the job is that there is a desire to commercialise and to make money from that. But really, it's a desire to have impact, to see your ideas grow and to be used in the real world to realise significant impact to address these issues that we've been talking about. Mm. So what we need to do at Begbrick is to create a flexible, fluid innovation ecosystem but we'll start from the real estate through to supporting the networks, through to creating the amenities and the environment that people will just enjoy being part of, through to creating the brand and the story around the place. So why I find it so fascinating is it's so much more than a real estate job. It's really starting to think about what researchers and entrepreneurs need, what partners we need to help them do that, how can we engender a certain culture? Again, working with partners. Where is and how do we support that scientific leadership? And if we can do that, we can really realise the potential. And we're very much the enablers and the facilitators here. We're not the stars of the show. Mm. We're supporting others to a achieve A great coffee potential. shop and a great pizza place. I think it's probably <laughs> the two starting points for a... And a gym, and a gym. Don't forget the gym. Yeah, science and innovation. But... I mean, on that point, obviously the culture and that champagne court popping sense of pioneeringness, that's going to be created by some of these spin outs and some of these high growth firms, isn't it? It's not going to necessarily come from Big Pharma, whilst Big Pharma will be the attraction for some of those firms, given that R&D has pretty much just been outsourced for the last 20 years, really, hasn't it? You could quite happily argue to the startup community. Well, I think a lot of the research shows that you do need a range of size and scale of organisations co-located together. Oh, yeah. No, I get that. But my point was that if you look at Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Moderna, the way they do R&D is by buying companies these days. They're not necessarily led down by the same R&D teams they may have had in previous generations. And what that means for you as someone developing the space is that there's probably a need to cater to, as you say, a broad church of tenants and occupiers, but also supporting those at the start of the journey is probably more important than it's ever been. Yeah, I think those big organisations, their business models have evolved. And I have to say, it's not my area of expertise, but my sense is that even when they've bought those businesses, they've still got to nurture them and keep them growing. I also think that they've got to, as you say, maintain relationships with spin-outs and the sources of those spin-outs and nurture those relationships. So I think they're a key part of the ecosystem going forward. Absolutely, the energy and the sheer inspiration of those smaller businesses are key 
to it. And I think that does come back to a real estate challenge. You know, how can traditional real estate models, because we still have got to make this commercially viable yeah. and deliver a long-term but, but return. But it's not going to be delivered by making some Series C startup side of 20-year lease, is it? No, exactly. So again, going back to why this is so fascinating is you've also got to think how can the real estate model adapt to support this almost escalator of innovation? So how are we going to create the business models behind buildings where you'll be looking to support startups and spin-outs who suddenly need space in a month's time and mm. they can only commit for a shorter period of time which is the exact opposite almost of letting a building to google at king's cross yeah and they don't have the covenant strength because they're you know start up and spin up but again i think that is really interesting you've got to start to make the business case from different perspectives and that's why you need shareholders who've got a long-term view, effectively. Mm. That's why you need to mix up the real estate as well, because the innovation ecosystem will benefit from different types of properties and different types of commercial models. Yeah. But also the business plan that we need to deliver on will benefit from it as well. And how far are you going to go when it comes to sustainability? Because you do have that long-term perspective that many don't have the benefit of possessing. And you're obviously going to have a local community that asks lots of questions. I mean, they're going to be far more informed than many communities, I think it's fair to say, just given (laughs) what's on the doorstep, not least because of who your JV partners are, you are going to be held to higher standards. Yeah, and both shareholders are committed to really delivering on the sustainability agenda. And actually that in itself is pushing us to properly engage, not just get on with some box ticking around accreditations. On a master plan level at Bedbrook, we're looking at different forms of energy systems, as well as on-site renewables, as well as really high levels of biodiversity delivery through the green space, but not shying away from issues. Like, how do you really deliver high levels of biodiversity whilst ensuring that your open space delivers as much amenity as possible. And that comes down to sort of practical things about, you know, can you let the dogs run around in the field, which is meant to have all the skylarks in it? And, you know, we're getting down to kind of the practical issues here, but we are really trying to actually address some of these tensions and conundrums. We're also looking at the building fabric, for example. So trying to explore... Got lots of beehives over at Granter Park. Bees seem to be quite popular. <laughs> yeah, they are, they are. But, but as you say, it's a mix. It's but not it's, just... What is really going to move the dial here? What is the investment case? And how are we going to measure that over time? So exploring fabric-first approaches and then the equipment that you need to put into buildings to support ventilation, for example. You know, mm. Is that the best result how are we really going to drive and resolve some of those tensions but to have shareholders who actually properly engage in some of these conundrums well maybe get your material science innovators well to, it's to, funny I mean, you should say that because what we are trying to do with baby is create a living lab i was going to say it seems a great opportunity to do that and to road test you talk about supporting the commercialization of some of those businesses well what's a better endorsement than legal in general and oxford university using it in a building yeah So we're trying to develop a living lab concept where we are encouraging the university and also working particularly with Legal and General's green energy businesses to use the site to explore new technologies, new problem-solving approaches, starting off with some development issues, but also hopefully have wider applications. 
also using it to inspire students. So we're working with master's students and some of the undergraduates just to use the site as an example for them to explore different ideas on. So really using Bedbrook, the living lab, to explore new technologies, but also new research methodologies, and then to use it for teaching. But also as we grow, I think we can use the living lab to almost, again, that culture of kind of innovation, that culture of pioneering, and also to feed into the kind of branding of the site over time. Well, as you said, I mean, it's impact, it's weaponizing impact. And and I think that's the thing that you can probably draw on from almost every participant in the community. You are going to have some really disparate views that were going to be driven by age, social background, education, professional status, all that sort of usual sort of stuff. But I think that overarching desire to live healthily and to create, and some people might not care so much about impact, but everyone's going to want to live yeah, healthily. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. And I think it's reminding people where their vaccines come from and all of the other things that I'm sure are being dealt with there from, you know, hip replacements to all sorts of other things. And it's an amazing array of, of different stuff. I'm conscious of time, but I did want to ask you about some of your background, Anna, because you not only studied physics, but you did so at Cambridge. Uh, <laughs> so you, you, must, you must keep that quiet. As... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I started off studying physics, but then I went back to my true love, which was history. So I did a degree in history, master's in economic history, and then uh, I went to Japan. I worked in an economic think tank, which was so fascinating to see how the Japanese economy and politics worked. But when I came back, I thought, oh, I don't even know my own country. So I got a job with DTZ in Scotland and then came back to London. DTZ in Scotland? Yeah. What was the trigger there? Well, as I say, I, I came... guess it's the opposite of studying economics in Japan. If you had to actually pick what is the exact opposite of that, it's working with DTZ in Scotland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I have to say I found learning Japanese so hard. You know, I just sort of... Cambridge graduate, thought I could rule the world, went to Japan, thought, God, I can't speak a word of this language. So I really struggled, but I really had an interesting More time. More difficult there. than Scottish? <laughs> well, <laughs> God, Scotland, it was the iron brew drinking, which was a big challenge there. <laughs> and I came back to the UK and I thought, God, I've, le- I've spent all this time looking at Japan. I want to go and explore my own country. So I got this job in Scotland and I really enjoyed it. I was the junior in the office. So I had to go and do like street surveys of Dundee street surveys of Perth, Glasgow, Edinburgh. And then... This is late 90s, right? Yeah, 2000, yeah. yeah. And then I came back to London, got a job with Arup and worked in their economic and planning team. Actually, when I was at Arup, I worked on Argent's planning application for King's Cross. And then when I got permission, Roger and Robert phoned me up, said, do you want to come and work for us? Grabbed the opportunity. And And what did they want you to do at that point? Well, it's really interesting. They just got the Section 106 signed and they said, right, come and deliver all the commitments we've set out in the Section 106. So I said, yep, love to do that. It was a small company then, 35 people. It was just after the credit crunch, so we didn't have much money. And it was all about getting out there, making things happen. Schools programme, public art programmes, set up the Construction Skills Centre, set up the Jobs Brokerage. At the same time, I did evening classes in property valuation because I thought you've got to understand the economics of this and you've really got to speak the language. And they kindly sponsored me. Argent really supported that approach. And when I was there, 
fantastic opportunity because I took on delivering estate management, set up the asset management team, was in charge for all of the curation of the ground floor retail events. Then I was the lead on cold drops. So that was my baby for five years. Retail development helped and led set up with Related on the build to rent portfolio. I worked on Brent Cross, Tottenham as King's Cross, got into a more of a steady state position. Mm. So it's, yeah, fantastic. Learned a lot working there, worked with some brilliant people. And as you say, really embedded a sort of set of development values, which were pretty hard-edged commercial approach. There's some good commercial minds at Argent. I learned a lot from them, but also a wider sensibility about... You know, being a developer is a massive privilege. You are changing the landscape and that affects so many different people and treating that privilege with respect and having a commitment long-term to delivering on that is, in my mind, so important. And if you can bring a commitment to quality and placemaking with a kind of astute commercial sensibility, I think you can deliver on both. Mm. No, I agree. Well, it was a really good way to summarise it, a good place to leave it. Anna Strongman, boss of Oxford University Developments, thanks a lot for coming on this morning. And we'll have Peter Freeman, and actually Argent legend Peter Freeman will be coming in, now chair of Homes England, of course. He'll be coming in in a month's time to talk about things. So we'll ask him a few questions about that hard edge then, I suspect, Anna. But thank you once again. You can subscribe to Propcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts from. I've been Andrew Teacher, Managing Director at Montford Real Estate, and we'll see you again very, very soon.